Okay, hi there, this is Kirk Hamilton, and I am opening up my Mintrax album assignment right now. I have no idea what it's going to be, so let's see. All right, let's see what Mr. Hamilton has in store for me. My album assignment is Big Thief, Two Hands, which is actually not something that I'm familiar with. Jeff Buckley's Grace. That's cool. That's one of those kind of classic albums that, I mean, I know the single and I know it's well regarded. I'm a big fan of his dad, Tim Buckley, but I don't believe I've ever listened to that entire album. Oh, interesting. Okay, Wikipedia says Two Hands is the fourth studio album by the American band Big Thief. It is not a band that I'm familiar with. I don't know Big Thief. So I'm looking forward to listening to this and then talking about it on the show. Welcome to Mintrax, the dueling musical review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson, joined as always by super producer, Jason Daphnis. Hello again, everybody. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and leave a review there. You can find us on Patreon and support us and leave a, a couple of questions and comments every couple of weeks before we record an episode. And we are very uh, happy this week to be joined by a special guest, Kirk Hamilton. Uh, Kirk, you might know as a writer. Uh, he wrote a lot of stuff about video games at Kotaku, among other places, as a saxophonist, a composer, and uh, most notably and most recently, he has a great music podcast called Strong Songs, uh, which you can find at strongsongspodcast.com, patreon.com slash strongsongs. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it is my pleasure. Hello, Matt. Hello, Jason. I'm super happy to be here and expanding my musical horizons. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So... I just wanted to kind of touch on your background because I, I think it's kind of interesting because unlike, you know, me, uh, you have actually some sort of musical training uh, as a composer and a saxophonist also. Um, you know, the podcast I think is interesting for people that haven't heard it. I, I highly recommend it. But you sort of nice. use a song that you think is really well constructed, very interesting in terms of how it was put together and arranged and composed and then sort of use that as a jumping off point. Uh, to sort of talk about a certain element of music. Um, how did you come up with a concept and, and just, you know, talk a little bit about how you, how you do that? Sure. Um, well, so I had been podcasting at Kotaku, making Kotaku Split Screen, uh, the video game podcast, and that was the first time I'd ever really done any podcasting. We started that in like 2015, I guess. So before I wrote for Kotaku, I was a musician. I like went to music school, studied jazz saxophone, um, played in San Francisco as like a jazz musician for a long time and taught a lot as well. I was a jazz band director at a high school there and uh, it was Cool. And then suddenly I just found myself writing about, uh, writing about video games. And, um, in the process started podcasting with, uh, my then colleague, Jason Schreier and sort of realized that podcasting was a really natural fit for the kind of music teaching that I'd been doing. So I had been doing on split screen a thing called Kirk's music pick of the week that just sort of organically started happening. Like that show was very much me and Jason just being like, whatever, let's just screw around. Like nobody was telling us what to do. I don't think the podcast was really making mo any money for the site. We were just kind of doing it and our boss let us do it, which was nice. So I started putting music picks at the end of episodes. I think actually we were putting it at the front of episodes, but then people would load a video game podcast up and it'd be like some guy talking about like jazz for five minutes and no one wanted to hear that. So I um, we moved it to the end of the episode and it kind of started getting longer and longer. And I would be like, oh man, like there's this really great guitar part on this song in this one part. And then I found myself kind of editing. Um, I, I edit in Logic and I, I also edit, um, I edit split screen. 
And I was kind of, you know, editing in examples and sort of talking over them and realizing this would be really fun to do, you know, as its own thing. And so I kind of mentioned that to Jason. He said, you should do an episode on Toto's Africa. You should do like a whole thing. And then I did that and launched it as a show. And then it kind of people liked it and it grew and it's become like one of my, maybe kind of my main project right now. Um, it's, it's been a really awesome thing. It just feels like bringing together a lot of, a lot of different things that I've done over the years and getting to teach like a lot of people, but in a way that, um, lets me do other things too. So it's been, it's been really cool. That's great. Yeah. It's an excellent show. Highly recommend Thanks. people listen to it. Um, and, and the thing that I, I liked, which I guess we can kind of spring into your choice this week, your album. Um, I like how you use sort of, often the song is a jumping off point to discuss a certain aspect of music. Mm. Uh, I know you talked about Debo recently in like sort of 11, eight time. There's a a thing about a rush Tom Sawyer talking kind of just about drumming and in general. And obviously Neil Peart used a lot of odd time signatures and the album that we're going to discuss today. That was your pick uh, is Jeff Buckley grace. And you actually um, used it as sort of a jumping off point again to, to talk about alternate guitar tunings. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very, very dear to my heart. I'm very, I, I don't like standard tuning at all. Oh, really? really. Interesting. No. What's your favorite alternate guitar tuning? Open C. The oh, sun really? Tuning. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's spiritual. Mm-hmm. It's a good sound. It's a good sound. I don't <laughs> do enough, man. I, so I'm like an okay guitar player. I started like learning after, after music school. And it's, yeah, I, mean, I can play all right, but I'm not great. And it's not like a liter, I just don't feel super literate on it. And man, that, Learning things in alternate tuning is a fascinating process for me anyways. I yeah. find that it kind of, it like divorces my brain from the harmony and I have to just totally think in shapes and they're not even the shapes that I'm used to thinking in. They're like, it's like a weird cubist view of the world or something. Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, cause <laughs> you know, I, you, you sort of lost the, the typical, you know, major scale, right. you know, kind of forms. I actually had a teacher that took some lessons from a guy named Peter Lang, who was a very well-regarded, he's he's very old now, but he was a super well-regarded fingerstyle player in the 60s. Oh, nice. Um, an associate of John Fahey's. But uh, he talked about how he felt it was more resonant because you're, you're, you're putting less fingers on the, on the, the more open strings you have, right, like the more right, resonant right. the instrument is. And he, he kind of went into this whole thing about how originally, you know, all music was kind of done in open tunings, but, just the demands of like when music kind of became a business and there were show bands mm-hmm. and you had to do gigs, it was, you know, standard tuning makes it the the key to standard tuning is it makes it very easy to go between different key signatures mm-hmm. and it's very easily translatable. So you don't have to like retune between each. Right. Each or bring song, six guitars to the gig. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, it was interesting. So I was glad you got into that topic. Um, I guess I should steer. I'm getting off here. Um, we should steer back to Jeff Buckley. <laughs> sure. um, I know you, you recently did, um, podcast which i also encourage people to listen to um tell me a little bit about why you chose this if is this sort of a favorite of yours um do you have uh, any kind of history with this album i do i yeah i mean this is one of my favorite albums of all time um jeff buckley is one of my favorite musicians of all time so yeah i first heard this album in college there was a whole thing where i was a real jazz head growing up i i kind of you know i listened to other music but that was my main thing and i was just really into jazz saxophone um all through middle school and high school i was super serious about it went to school studied it like was super hardcore i'm going to be a professional jazz saxophonist and and then there was this point in school, like senior, junior, senior year, where I started to broaden my musical horizons. I'm sure I would have loved this podcast back then. And um, 
that album was one of the first albums that I heard that just freaked me out. It kind of, it just threw me for a loop. Like it was the, a style of, I guess rock, right? You'd call it rock. It's like rock singer songwriter stuff that just, it was yeah. on a level that I hadn't really heard before or expected before. And this was in the early 2000s. So this was like 10 years after the album came out. It's a 1994 album, but I just wasn't aware of him and it knocked me out. I mean, I heard that, you know, his cover of Hallelujah is incredible, but it was those first three tracks, Mojo Pin, then Grace, and then Last Goodbye. Just like the level of what was going on, I couldn't track at all. I didn't, you know, I couldn't play guitar at all. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't, you know, I knew the harmony just from what I was hearing, but it wasn't until later that I'd learned the songs. But just hearing what he was doing with the arrangements, with his vocals, holy crap. And like just the whole thing really, really knocked me out and kind of opened my eyes to how much good music there was out there that wow. I didn't know about. And since then, it's just continually been one of my favorite albums. I mean, it's got some of the most beautiful vocal performances ever recorded, I think anyways. And then the more I've learned the songs and learned the guitar parts, the more I've come to realize what a special guitar player Jeff Buckley was as well. Like, I think people really celebrate him for his singing because he's an amazing singer, but he's an amazing guitar player and so interesting and a really interesting songwriter. So there's just so much there. Every time I listen to it, I hear new things. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's certainly one of my favorite albums ever. Well, Jason, why don't we hear a little bit? Let's play Last Goodbye. That's probably, you've probably either heard this song or Hallelujah. If you've heard a song by Jeff Buckley, this is a, was kind of a hit, I think, at the time and also, you know, sort of stuck around. Um, great bass part on this, which I, I wanted to call attention to. I think it's a <laughs> yeah. really amazing bass part. But uh, why don't we play Last Goodbye for a while? There, uh, you hear just a kind of example of his vocal range. He does that a lot, I think, in, in, the, in this album. He, he'll kind of mm -hmm. start at a lower range, and then they'll sort of be like a jump, almost like a, I don't know if it's a key <laughs> yeah. change or what, but definitely a jump in register. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you get a sense of, I think, it's a pretty good song 
I know it's just kind of his biggest hit, but it's also, I think it gives you a pretty good idea of where he's coming from. It does. Uh, you know, the song is an interesting one because for a long time, I almost did the episode on Grace, which is the song before this one, which is amazing and more kind of evidently odd from the very beginning. It's just an unusual tune. It's actually only played in drop D, but there's just the form and it's moving really, there's a lot of like chromatic chords, just like moving in half steps and the melody. The, it's just a like very strange and haunting song that then ends in this like incredible scream that he does is super intense. But Last Goodbye to me always kind of struck me as a more traditional song. I was just because that verse, the part we actually just listened to, it's kind of just in D major, which is like a pretty standard key for guitar. And it does like a like B minor walk down to A. Like it's the chords are, you could play it in standard tuning. It'd sound fine. It wouldn't sound like it sounds on the recording because they're playing in this kind of unusual tuning, but the chords aren't like super weird chords or anything. But then the deeper I get into the song or the more I learned it, the more I realized that it's actually, it's a through composed song in a way. Like it doesn't, it does have two verses, but the verses are very different. Like you said, he goes up, he sings his first starting on an A and he like is kind of in his lower register. And then he sings the second verse starting up on a D and he just sings a completely different melody. So it's like the same chord progression, but it's just totally different what he's singing. And like that riff section, the Yeah, it's a great bass part. Oh man, so cool. I love that bass part. That's a Mick Grundle on bass. There's only him and Matt Johnson, the only two other musicians on this track. Or I guess there's a cellist or the string section. But it's just that rhythm section, a bunch of um, multi-tracked guitars. But that, like that bass riff is so... The first time you hear it, he's playing it under that intro with the slide guitar. Then the drums come in, then he plays it again. It's like, okay, I get it. This is this kind of riff. But then later in the song, when Buckley sings over it, he goes up super high, that like, kiss me, please kiss me, beautiful lyric. And it's like, sounds completely different. There's a string part. Like, it's just, it's like recontextualizes everything about that bass line. And it doesn't sound at all like it sounded at the beginning. And the song keeps doing that. It like keeps taking things that it did once and then turning them, you know, 180 degrees and doing something completely different with them. And then just evolving and evolving and evolving. It's it's fascinating, like the deeper you go. Yeah, it's interesting. <clears throat> I mean, again, I kind of just get a gut sense of this, but you know, obviously you as a school jazz musician kind of pick up on that. Well, and you know, I that, spent like, you know, days learning this song to make a strong songs episode on it. So yeah. this one in particular, <laughs> well, I'm like yeah. intimately familiar with every sure. detail of it. But I mean, he definitely does um I think he kind of balances I think sort of nineties rock stuff that that's not completely you know different from what was going on but then he'll yeah kind yeah of on this song in particular in that different. riff right right yeah i mean that 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 definitely fit in the time another mm-hmm. one um i wanted to kind of point out just as an example of i think where you kind of take where i don't want to even say typical because that sounds like a a slight but i think more conventional let's say yeah 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 and then he takes it somewhere different this is the song that you just brought up and i, I was one that i particular part i wanted to bring up jason so um i think it's at 159 on grace oh man this is such a good song Walking to the bright lights and sorrow Or oh, drink a bit of wine, we both might go tomorrow Oh my love, and the rain is falling I believe my time has come It reminds me of the pain I'm 
just like following yeah. the bass through this song. I know Matt was talking about the really strong bass in this album, mm-hmm. but following the bass line through that pre-chorus and even through the, through the chorus is, it just, it tickles your brain in a really, really weird way. It's mixed super well, I think. Like the bass sound oh. on this album is killer. Yeah. The drums sound killer too. Like everything sounds really good on this yeah, album. Yeah, that was a, that was an overall observation I wanted to get into. It's a very well recorded album. Yeah. I think Andy Wallace did this, and he did a lot of stuff with um, REM. Mm-hmm. He produ- he mixed Nirvana, uh, Nevermind. So he was a big, you know, a big deal, especially at that time. And I think he did an mm-hmm. excellent job with this. Um, but yeah, like right there, it's like he. Uh, you know, the the first maybe 15 seconds of the kind of verse, you know, it's not entirely dissimilar to something that maybe like, you know, a Pearl Jam or something sure. would, would do mm-hmm. it. But then it does that sort of ascending thing with yep. the string arrangement. That's, <laughs> the magic kind of almost reminds me of like a, like, a, like a Stevie Wonder, like kind of mid-70s chord change. And then, then he, you know, after that with those kind of cool strings and then he goes into that falsetto. But I, th- I think he does that a lot where he kind of has this more basic groove and you sort of get used to that. And then he'll sort of maybe upend your expectations of where it was mm-hmm. going to go musically from like where a normal rock song would go, which I think he kind of plays with that structure stuff in different ways. And, and it, that's cool to me. Yeah, I think it's some of it is his history as a guitar player, like that just he is so good at guitar, but not in the way that we tend to think of a good guitar player as being good. Like he's not, I mean, maybe he could do a bunch of fingers tapping like shred solos and stuff, but he doesn't like play guitar solos in that way. It's more that his guitar parts are really technical and really interesting and they're kind of hard to play. This is a fun one. Grace is fun to play on guitar just because it's like, it's not that hard. And that ascending part is magic to me anyways, where it like walks up and he's really fond of these shapes. It's this one shape that he does. He does it in drop D. He does it also on last goodbye, though that's in a slightly different tuning. And it's like, you can just slide your hand in a version of this shape all the way up the neck. And you get this cool, like boom, 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 like as he moves up the scale. And what I like about this, both Grace and Last Goodbye have this, is that he played these songs solo on guitar a lot. Like he was very, you know, there's this very cool live at Chenet, this recording of him at this cafe in New York, just him up there at the microphone singing. And he does all these songs from Grace and a bunch of other stuff too. It's really cool. And um you can hear all the same parts when he's just playing by himself. They just orchestrated them. You know, they obviously the bass is playing the bass part. The drums are like playing a groove. And then the strings are always playing some version of what he's also doing on guitar. So it all kind of comes organically out of his guitar parts, which is one of the reasons that I've become so taken with the idea of him as a guitarist, even though his singing, you know, like his singing on Grace is totally out of control. Yeah. Let's, let's listen to another one. I think that you mentioned, um, it was another one. It's the opening track. And I think this track you know, oh, sets man. the stage pretty good, but main, uh, Mojo Pin is the first track on this. And I think it's also definitely one of the standout tracks. Um, Why don't we hear a little bit of that, Jason? I 
mean, that, that's, an, that's a great transition there. That's yeah, this song is so funny because if you ever play someone this album or you put it on during dinner or something, it starts so quiet. And、um, even this, that part we were listening to is so quiet. That song gets crazy <laughs> by the end. It's like full on. They're like really like just like it's pretty chaotic. And he's kind of screaming and the guitar is just like clanging and like the band is really hitting it super hard. <laughs> and there's this、yeah. massive gulf dynamically between the beginning and the end of the song. And it kind of captures the album in general, which like has some pretty rocking stuff on it, pretty intense stuff. But then also, like, you know, Hallelujah, like the most sort of intimate recording of just a person with a guitar, like singing. And it、uh, kind of runs the whole gamut. Yeah, he's really, I mean, his voice is very impressive. I don't know, are you a, a fan of his father?、Uh, you know, I've、Tim、heard、Buckley. his music. I, I, I'm not like a huge diehard or anything, but he's, he's great. I mean, I've, I've definitely heard his music and dig it. Yeah, no, I, I, I was, I've been a big fan of his father, Tim Buckley, who I don't、mm. think he had a real relationship with, but I mean, I think there's some similarities、mm-hmm. in, in terms of their sort、sure. of jazzy and folk influenced approach to rock. And also, there's something I really like about his voice that his father had too, which is almost this, I mean, almost kind of this like really,、um, almost like a feminine quality to it. You know,、sure. it's very like kind of his register, his high register is so good and it sounds so natural. Yeah. Like he, he's not really straining. To hit those notes. And yeah, he's just, it's, it is, his voice is really,、um, I think, exceptional. Yeah, he can yeah. do covers. I mean, like Lilac Wine, that cover, like he'll sing stuff like Sarah Vaughn stuff or Nina Simone stuff, no problem. And he sings a lot of, there's even like recordings of him doing opera、um, repertoire, like in the alto range, just because he had, I mean, So there's like the, the whole thing of like falsetto and mix. Like he has, a, he can stretch his mix up to, I don't know, like a D or an E or something. Like, and he just had so much control that you can hear him flitting around between these different registers. Like it's nothing like up there. And I just, it freaks me out. Just as someone who's always, you know, working on singing and studying singing and trying to get better, hearing someone with that kind of control totally. Knocks me out.、Yeah. I just get obsessed with the technique and it's actually easy for me to forget sometimes to just listen to what he's singing because <laughs> I'm like so <laughs> caught up in how he's singing it. So here's a question for you.、Um, is it even maybe selling it short to call it falsetto or is it just that his range is that high? He, yeah, I, I mean, it's it, it, almost like kind of a trick or like a well, technique, I guess. Kind, no, like I, it's the way I think of it. Everyone thinks of this differently. The way I think of it, and my voice teacher, Talks about it. It's more like falsetto is just your head voice, which is just a type of resonance. And that's up here when you're singing like this. And then your chest is where I'm talking right now. And that's kind of, you know, the stronger sound. And then pretty much your voice is always in some kind of a mix, which is a mix between those two resonances. And a really good singer can sort of go between them at an expanding. You know, range in their voice. Like most of us can go between it in a kind of limited range. And then the better you get a technique, the more you can stretch that out. And you can stretch your mix over your vocal break, which is that place in the male voice, at least that's like super tough right around like C, D, E, and F. And he, it's not an issue at all. I mean, like for him, it's like he can just, he can bring a little bit of chest into his head voice way up on like A's and B's and C's and stuff.、Um, he does it all the time. So falsetto is like, it's not a pejorative. It's just a way of describing when he's in his very, very light, you know,、um, piercing head voice. That's his falsetto, which he uses plenty and it sounds incredible. But then he can just 
you know, put on the gas a little bit and he'll add a little body to it. And then it's okay. not a full falsetto. It's like a mix, like a falsetto heavy mix with like a little chest in it. And then he'll scream and it's like a full chest scream, like on a high D or something crazy like he does at the end of, the, of Grace. Um, I guess we're going to do singing. So let, let's, this is kind of the, I guess maybe the song that um, he's kind of remembered for it's a cover of a Leonard Cohen song, yeah, a cover Hallelujah. kind of ironically. Um, but you know, and I, I mean, I think there's other elements. Obviously, he he met a. If people don't know, he met sort of a tragic end mm-hmm. at a young age. He he died uh, swimming, I believe, in a river. Yeah, in the Mississippi or a tributary um, to the Mississippi. Yeah, and so you know, I, this song is very mournful, and I think that was kind of a big part of his image. Um, I believe he was somewhat troubled at times, and so. Mm-hmm. This this song has kind of maybe been, you know, the, the thing that's kind of most defined him, I think, for a lot of people. talk over this recording <laughs> yeah but i think i think it like really bears mention that until like 50 seconds into this song it's not like it doesn't follow the full structure of the original or even mm-hmm. of like most of the renditions that followed like he starts out with this beautiful riff that just only slightly like outlines and evokes the song mm-hmm. and then gives it sort of a like like he the, the the sound that ends up that he almost ends that like intro solo on is like that tritone sound like that very mm-hmm. discordant like jammy sound and then just slaps right into it i think that like i you spoke a lot kurt on your episode about this song about his like roots as a guitarist and how like the album really thrives on that and builds a lot around it and really gives voice to the guitar and I think this is probably like the moment on this album, full disclosure, I didn't listen to any Jeff Buckley before this. So I'm really glad to have gotten the opportunity. Oh, wow. Awesome. This is, yeah. This is the <laughs> moment that like, that sold me on, man, this guy 
he really thought very like not only highly of others music and of his influences but of his own ability to like translate those oh man yeah I totally agree with that. For starters, yeah. So I think that Hallelujah is a total guitar showpiece. This song has, toward the end of this, he holds that like, that note forever. And it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. I'm like not even exaggerating, at least to me. It's like one of my favorite musical moments ever recorded. It's so beautiful. Every time I hear it, it like gives me goosebumps and I just freak out. And it's because he holds this note for a really long time, and he's singing in this very light voice. It's not like hard what he's doing, but he he sings it so beautifully. And then the guitar playing that he is doing underneath it is so perfect. Like everything about the guitar part on this is so carefully considered and gorgeous. It's recorded so beautifully and mixed so beautifully. I think they've yeah. like double mic the guitar. It sounds like it's like a twin and the bass mm-hmm. is over on the right and the high strings over on the left. They've got this big reverb on it and that's all it is. And it's just one guy sitting down is able to make something that sounds that beautiful and blows me away. And to the thing you're saying about covers, I love that he covered Leonard Cohen for this. I mean, Lilac Wine is another beautiful cover on Grace that he does. That's a really gorgeous rendition. And he was really good at covers. If you listen, I really, that's, it's cool that this, um, album introduced you to him just because, um, live at Shanae, if you've listened to Grace a few times, it's really fun to go listen to that live recording because it's super rough and tumble. He's just at a microphone talking. Um, some of the songs are kind of sketches, but he does all these covers and it's also just him talking a lot. He was a really delightful guy, like on the mic. He's very funny. And he does like a cover of Nusrat Fatin Ali Khan, like the Pakistani singer, who's like apparently oh. his like ultimate wow. favorite singer. And it's incredible. Like he starts playing this song and he begins to sing. Um, and people think like, oh, like people are laughing kind of uncomfortably because, you know, he's not singing in English. He's singing with an accent. And it seems like, oh, maybe this is going to be weird. And then he gets going and he like, sings the whole friggin' song and he destroys it. Like, it's like unbelievable. He's totally going off. He's like just going and going and going and singing. And like, you know, I, I don't understand what he's singing, but the music is so good. And it's so clear that he just like loves Nusrat and has like learned all of his music and is like this total student of him and has so much respect for him. And it's a thing that came across in his music a lot, I think, is he just like loved music and he loved musicians. And it really, that comes out. And that's like a very admirable thing that I, that I, I agree with you on completely. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting cover. It, it, because just, uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of Leonard Cohen. Yeah. And I think it, it's an interesting tape because it's so different. I think with Cohen, there's always a certain, well, num- I mean, number one, his voice was, you know, yeah. not the most expansive range. Yeah, he was not Jeff Buckley. It was very, very um, different kind of a voice. <laughs> but but I, the thing, one of the things I love about Cohen is there's a certain sort of like sardonic kind of wit to it. You know, mm-hmm, even like, mm-hmm. even within the song, he's he's so sort of like self-conscious in a good way. Yeah. You know, like even like kind of he in the lyrics of the song, sort of narrating the song, like, you know, there's the, the card the progression. Fourth, yeah. yeah the, the fourth, the fifth, the minor, mm-hmm. you know, the minor fall, the major lift and stuff like that. So there's sort of an element of like, I mean, it's a deeply felt song when he does it, but Cohen has a certain sort of odd sense of humor, I think, sure. that comes through that Buckley is definitely more of a, it's very, you know, yeah. Almost, yeah, it's very sincere kind of treatment. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, right. I, I think, I think a quote from Jeff Buckley is that his own cover of the song was known as the, I think, and I might be misquoting this slightly, but he said the Hallelujah of the orgasm, which <laughs> I have no idea how to read that or what it means, but it sort of reflects like his own passion for, for like not only again somebody else's music, but his rendition of that music. Like he's 
clearly very proud of it, not not standoffish, but yeah. that that impacted knowing how he thought about his own music impacted a lot for me about how about about like how I view this album. I guess yeah, it's it, not just that he, you know, was just putting together music that was always in his head, but like he thought about it, he was very clearly intentional about everything he did. And it's kind of interesting too in, in retrospect, sometimes songs just a certain version of a song is so powerful to people that in a way it's almost kind of it's sort of almost swamped Cohen's original in a way. I think it, Yeah, it, I'd say that's oh, a, for a lot of people kind safe of to say, see yeah. this and, and but the in a way it's Wainwright cover too. I think that's another big yeah. one. But in a, in a way also it kind of swamped um Buckley's own material. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it, this I mean, not that it overshadows it. I mean, because, you know, Last Goodbye is, is pretty well known. But I think when a lot of people think of it, they, you know, they think of this song. And so it's just sort of interesting mm-hmm. how sometimes a certain version of a song can sort of resonate so strongly with people. That yeah. It kind of erases the memory of some other stuff. Yeah. I know. I know. Um, Min Max is a <laughs> is an organization dedicated to games, uh, friends and and getting better, being positive. But like. It's it's a legitimate question that I have to ask people who bring up this song. What's like? What is the least? What's the worst cover you've ever heard of? Hallelujah, because you've heard bad covers, I'm sure. Um, I've well, probably seen people sing it, and it's been not great. But it's such a good song that it's pretty hard to mess it up, unless you're just like yeah, out of tune or like can't sing or something. I really liked uh, what's her name on Saturday Night Live when she covered it. Do you remember? It was like after Trump okay, got elected, uh, she just dressed yeah. up as Hillary Clinton and ah. like <laughs> played it on piano, and it wasn't really for laughs. Like it was funny because it was an absurd thing to see, but everybody was in such a messed up, absurd place that yeah. I, I even I thought that was effective. Like that was a great use of the song. What, so I'm not sure I've, I've heard a bad version. Yeah, uh, I I bring it up because I I think people when they're covering this song. Not Jeff Buckley in particular, but they forget one how long it is, how many verses there are. Very long. Um, and and two how intense, like essential. I think musical accompaniment is. I was I was at a restaurant with my grandparents uh, a couple of Christmases ago, and they had like a holiday um, karaoke going on. You know, sing White Christmas, <laughs> sing John, uh-huh. you know, uh, uh, Road Off the Red Nose Reindeer, and then this one kid, clearly like uh, amateur musician, theater kid type, who um sat down and this full like seven minute version of this song, just acapella <laughs> by himself sitting uh-huh. on a chair in the middle of Damn. the restaurant. And it was like in between every verse, every like I was among them, like people started clapping to, you know, right. lightly insinuate, right, like, uh, yeah, let's wrap it up. That was great. Thanks for your contribution. And he wow. went through all seven minutes of this thing and woof. That's acapella, funny. That's, that's a, that's a big bite to try to do that in front of people. Acapella. Yeah. It was, be pretty confident. it was bravery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was bravery. true. I wanted to get another song. As long as we're, I guess, a little negative now, this is maybe one of the songs I didn't really Oh, I'm interested because there's one song on this album that I don't like as well. Okay, <laughs> or that so it doesn't I, totally just, work for me. I wonder yeah, if it's the it's same song. Eternal no, it's Life. spicy. Oh, okay. I, I like Eternal Life fine. Uh, mine is mine is um, so real. But uh, I want to hear what you think of Eternal Life, though. Sounds like a Muse song. <laughs> you gotta respect, like, after a really subdued album, 
just yeah. just rocking yeah, out. Yeah, going for it. Yeah, I mean, again, and I don't mean to be negative. Cause actually, it's a good riff. You know what I mean? But I guess this was the only time yeah. for me that what is generally a very distinctive album felt sort of just like indistinct kind of 90s alternative mm-hmm. rock to a degree. Like it just doesn't, I mean, you know, if you told me this was a band like Live or like Soundgarden or, you know, just yeah. music of that era. I, I just, it, it's the only time it maybe felt like to me that he might've been kind of writing something to a format that was sort of accepted on like, you know, alternative rock radio or grunge kind of mm-hmm. type stuff at that time. And again, it's not a bad song. I just didn't, for me, it was kind of an odd one in terms of the whole overall feel of what he does and the overall feel of the album. Yeah, it I don't comes know in a kind of a, a weird place in the album too. Like it's just, you're not quite ready for something that hits that hard. I actually do. I think this is really aggressively mixed. The last time I was listening to it, I was just really noticing how shrieky it is. Just the guitars are really in your face. It's pretty, it's just pretty intense. I like it because there are just parts of it that I like. Like I just really like how it ends. Like the bass line at the end is sweet. And so there, it's hard for me to separate those moments that I really like from the song overall, but I completely get what you're saying. Like it's the most traditional, just yeah. Like what you just said, it's the most traditional, like nineties rock song of all of them. Despite having a yeah. couple of Buckley flourishes, it feels like the most inside the box. That's true. Can I, uh, can I play a little bit of the ending to hear what you like sure. about it? Yeah, yeah. sure. Just really that, like I like that, like ba-doom, Like that's just a sick groove. Like I, I think that groove really, really works, and it's a cool way of ending the song. It's kind of minor, <laughs> like it, it's not even that distinctive a groove, but it sounds really good and works. So yeah, I'm a fan right. of that part. Uh, part of what we've been talking about is how Jeff Buckley sort of used the sound of the time, sort of that it, it is a very '90s sounding album in production, right? And and some mixing. That song almost sounds like I don't want to say a victim of, but sort of a harbinger of uh, the loudness war. It's pretty loud. Yeah, it's the most yeah. noticeably loud song on the album. But it's a kind of I a mean, loud from, album. Like when it gets loud, it's, it's say, a little intense. Yeah, and right. I mean, this, I mean that, that era was. You're right. I mean, you are right, Jason. Like that era was. Definitely starting like I'm trying to think of an album like Pinkerton by Weezer. Oh yeah, just that those crunched album just smashed. You know, yeah, so I'm that curious was if there's has there ever there's never been a remaster of this, huh? Like no one's taken the originals and remastered it. I feel like this would be ripe for that for someone to do like yeah. a vinyl master of this. I would buy the hell out of that. <laughs> like yeah, I, don't know. I have this I mean, on vinyl it, and it's very like it sounds fine, but it doesn't sound it, like it could. I think. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Not that I know. I, I did see there's a deluxe version that has. Yeah. Some sort of bonus tracks and stuff, but it didn't specifically say remaster. Yeah, I don't think that's didn't a remaster. sound too much different to me. And I usually they, they would call that out. But um, let's see, what's another song I wanted before we? Switch I do gears? say oh, to, uh, if if we can stay negative for a second, that so okay. real that song. All right, let's oh, play. That it. We're let's... so real. Like it's it is really cool. Like it has a bunch of really cool ideas, but it feels a little like a sketch to me still. Like it doesn't quite feel like all of the ideas are being united in the way that they are on like uh, last goodbye, where it feels like that also was a bunch of ideas he had, but he spent forever just, you know, I don't know the songwriting process, right? Like you take the thing and you're like, how do I connect this 
like blue Lego to this yellow Lego and you spend forever like <laughs> connecting smaller Legos and seeing what makes sense. Like he, he mu- clearly spent forever on last goodbye getting that to work. So real to me, it feels a little like the Legos are just stuck up against each other sometimes. Like it'll yeah. go from section to section and I'm like, okay, mm. oh, okay. And then it, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't quite feel there to me yet, even though the individual ideas are really cool. So, okay. Let's uh, take a listen to see what you're talking about. Sure. I think I see what you mean, Kirk. It's got, like, it's not quite anchored in right. the way that some of the yeah. other tracks are. Or like, I mean, right. And if it were going to be unanchored, it doesn't quite fly in the way that I want it to. Like, it's there's this cool idea there, and like the guitar parts are really neat, and like it's it just isn't. Quite, it feels like they're still in the studio figuring it out a little bit yeah. to me. I guess you know, and it, maybe you feel this way, but I always feel like you know, with bands I've been in, a, sometimes there's songs and there's something about them that you feel like it should work. Mm-hmm. And so you keep pressing and pressing to kind of make it work and kind of yep. just fit that square peg into the round hole. But there's always a certain sort of effortful yes. quality to the song that's not, it just never seems to flow quite right. And then you're always right. just back to the original riff that mm-hmm. you thought was cool, but you never feel like it was carried out to the degree that it should have been. And that's yep. what that's the vibe I get from this no, song. Yeah. And then like two years later, you look back and you're like, we should just cut that from our set. And then like, maybe like <laughs> exactly. pilfered it for parts a year later and stolen the one thing that I liked and put it in something else. <laughs> yeah. No, it's totally. that I mean, I've ever that, done that. <laughs> that's the vibe I get from the song that there was some aspect of it that he thought was cool. For sure. And he, he tried to like write around that, you know, as opposed to like kind of flowing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to, did want to listen to uh, dream brother. Which oh, I, thought was I like really, this song a lot. Um, very cool and atmospheric. this song so much matt yeah no it's it's this is probably might have been my favorite actually i, yeah, I really the like the kind of freeness of it and um you know almost like they're kind of spacing out to kind of like almost a jazz kind of thing it also reminds me like a lot of the chords on this remind me of like sort of late period led zeppelin mm-hmm. um which is a big favorite of mine and i 
probably a, I would imagine he was a Led Zeppelin fan. Oh yeah, and, he was super influenced like, by Robert Plant at the very least. Yeah, <laughs> uh, especially like later period, you know, like post yeah. Houses of the Holy or like Fiscal mm-hmm. Graffiti era Led Zeppelin. Um, that has that sort of I come almost like cloudy kind of sounding chords or something like yeah, that. Yeah, there's a lot of big harmonies in this one. There's this is actually you know the jazz pianist Brad Meldow does a great cover of this. Totally worth okay. checking out. It's like a jazz piano trio cover, but he kills it he does a lot of cool covers melda does and he covers this tune and it's really cool and it brings out kind of what you're talking about like there's a lot of dense harmony in this one i like that just like nobody ever came like i think that melody is really good it kind of anchors the tune and then each time Mm -hmm. they come back to that then they go off in these other directions and totally agree that i think matt johnson plays his ass off on this track like the drumming is just super good (laughs) on on it yeah, I, I like that there. It kind of stretches out some of those kind of free and like jazzy mm-hmm. elements of the record to sort of their most extreme. Not necessarily loud extreme, but just sort of they almost break with structure a little bit at times. Yeah, and they then, stretch it out. Still, kind of bring it back to the structure, which I, I really like. So that that song uh, uh, is a, is a good one. That was probably my favorite. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else we want to go over on this? There's. Well, Corpus, Corpus Christi Carol, which is yeah. another kind of very non-typical. And I'm just going to pat myself on the back for being a special boy. I was like, wow, this is like really kind of reminds me of like British sort of like folk music and stuff. <laughs> and it turned out that it's by uh, Benjamin Britten, who's a British composer that uh, I think from the early 20th century. Um, but yeah, why don't we hear that? Because it's just sort of, I guess, maybe the least typical song on the album. Yeah. Actually, you were saying he did opera covers, didn't you? Yeah, I've heard some recordings of it. Actually, my my voice teacher played me some of it when we were working on um, contralto stuff, or sorry, contratenor stuff, which is you know singing in that kind of much higher style. And he's done some really famous pieces up singing yeah. in this this voice he's I mean, using right there. Yeah, like I mean, that's very like kind of church music mm-hmm. almost. It's gorgeous. Yeah, the minute you hear the lyric, the falcon hath borne my maid away, you're like, we got to be listening to something <laughs> from, like, a Middle English Britain. or something. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but uh, I actually I like that song. It's a good one. It yeah, kind no, of, it's great. I think it serves the album in a way because it's so not rock at all, you mm-hmm. know, and not really part of any other traditions that he's kind of drawing from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of it, it centers it in an odd way, partly because it's so just him. You know, it's another one that's really a feature of him, and he's just singing almost by himself for a lot of it. And so it just sort of anchors it in his own sensibility, which is, you know, goes all over the place. I mean, he could have done a million different styles of music on it. It's fu- it's a funny album, right? Like, that it has all these different styles on it, and it does coalesce into something that works, despite, you know, both being, like, musically all over the place. There's a lot of different styles. It kind of starts in this one place. You think it's going to be, oh, okay, a bunch of really, like, tightly created, progressive, whatever, like, singer-songwriter stuff. But then immediately, then he does a cover of Lilac Wine. And you're like, oh, okay, so there's, like, a jazz ballad cover <laughs> after the first three songs. So now what? And then from there, it's just kind of, like, all over the place. But it still holds together just because of him, I guess. He's the thing that unites it all. Yeah, that's, I'm really curious about, like, for me, my perception of Jeff Buckley, only only you know, vaguely knowing who he was, not knowing at all his prowess or his music prior to listening to Grace, um, 
at your recommendation, like I still have a hard time. I'm sure it'll hit me sometime, but what in your opinion, you've spent a lot more time with this than I have. What in your opinion, uh, Kirk do like, what is it that draws people to Jeff Buckley? Is it the mystique over like his untimely death that primarily you think interests people? Is it, I mean, it's really hard for me to say it's, it's blank. It's like, he's a good guitarist or it's, he's a great vocalist or, you know, he has interesting uh, compositional arrangement skills and, and sensibilities because he has like, so you just, you just said it like he goes in a million different directions. He could, and he would kill all of them. So it's hard for me to pinpoint one thing, but what is it for you? I think it's his voice, or at least I think that that is the thing that draws people in initially. It's that voice. I mean, nobody else has ever sung like that or will ever sing like that again. There have been a lot of great singers, but just in terms of the kinds of textures that he could get vocally, it's just like, you know, it's chilling. It's beautiful. And so I think that when people first hear him, that's what they're drawn to. And I think that there's there are just so many, like as a male vocalist especially, to hear someone who's so free with his voice and can do so many things in so many different registers is just like, it makes you think like, my God, I wish I could sing like that. Like I could, <laughs> you could do anything like if you could sing yeah. like that. And so I think that that draws people in initially more than any other one thing. Like when they hear Hallelujah, he sings it so beautifully that you're like moved to tears practically just hearing him sing it, let alone you're hearing him sing it while like someone dies on a TV show or something because that's where you're hearing it for the first time because it's like been in a million movies. So I, I do think it's his voice. And then... I don't know. I think the more people get to know him and get to know his music, you realize how much was there and what a kind of oddball talent he was. And then I do think that the fact that he died just after making Grace, that he only has one completed studio album, that he, you know, is this tragic figure factors into it only because someone who's that kind of a talent, like, could have been a, like, I mean, he kind of was like a generational talent. He defined so much. I mean, there's a million guys who try to sing like him now, like that style, his style of singing. He basically took what Robert planted and then like turned it into a new thing. And now a million people just try to sound like Jeff Buckley and he only made one album. So it's, I, it's hard not to wonder what it would have been like if he had recorded a finished version of my sweetheart, the drunk, and then had made five more albums and now was still making albums. Like, and so I, I do think that's part of it too, is that you hear this yeah. voice, this person, this like amazing talent, and you listen to his album, you think, holy crap, like, who is this guy? And then you see, oh, and then he died and he didn't make any more music. And I think that yeah. that also like draws people in and makes, makes people, you know, want to listen to him more and, and talk about him. Must be said, he's extremely handsome as well. He is a he is a very beautiful so, man. That's also he's true. a pretty I mean, boy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he definitely had the full package. Let's say the full the full look. Yeah, it's, we're we're, get, we're getting a little horny on this podcast, man. Hey, he is the man. horny on Maine. He is a beautiful man <laughs> in like more ways than just having such a beautiful voice. And that I think that's that is part of it too. There's a mystique to him. I mean, even those photos and the liner notes, like you know the the skinny guy with the like cheekbones and the telecaster at the microphone with his eyes closed and the earring and then he opens his voice or opens his mouth to sing it it's like the most beautiful thing you've ever heard like that is certainly part of it too is that there's this whole allure to him that i think you know comes across even if you can't see him I i agree completely i like the thing that i take away from this from this album from listening to it is like so many vocalists i mean previous generations and today they interpret like hey falsetto is loud or it's soft it's not Mm -hmm. like particularly soulful a lot of the time um with the exception of like 
uh, mid-century African-American music and some newer, uh, you know, yeah, uh, there's soul some soul artists like well. to talk about like Al yeah. Green or someone like, yeah, I mean of that generation or like seal of, of late, like those, mm-hmm. those, those artists seem to understand, but primarily when it's deployed in like pop music or singer songwriter music, you just kind of end up sounding like an annoying coffee shop guitarist. Right. Um, where this like really, it, it's not what proves to me that falsetto is a legitimate way to sing, but like the way that he effortlessly flies between the two. We talked about that a little bit uh, with some of the early songs we played. Just the way that he's able to like have complete mastery over it, know exactly where he's going, hit the note on every time. <laughs> it's just so strong, so soulful, and I did not expect that from listening to this. Yeah, uh, he does, and he pulls from that soul tradition. You know, you li- listen to Luther Vandross sometime, and like listen to mm-hmm. what, like, try to really listen closely to what his voice is doing because Luther is like the master of the mix and the falsetto and like. Like using all these different timbres, and I feel like Buckley was pulling a lot from that style, from the like soul tradition, the African American yeah. vocal tradition, much more than he was when you hear, yeah, like a guy kind of popping into his falsetto, like a Chris Martin or whoever. Not that you know, not to yeah. knock on Chris Martin; he's a good singer too. No. But like yeah. that that yeah, style that he, you're talking about is, you know, he's not Luther Vandross, right? <laughs> not a not a huge fan. Strong um, words, but uh, yeah, no, I mean he's exceptionally talented. Um, and um, it's Matt, been a lot of fun because it's one of those albums that I kind of, uh, you know, missed a little bit at the time. I mean, I was familiar with it, but I didn't own it. So um, it was kind of sure. cool to be able to dig in. That it. makes me very happy that you listened to it for, for this show. I hope people listening, go listen to Grace, everybody. It's it's, it's a great album. <laughs> uh, Matt, where does this fall? Will this fall in like, like what times in your life are you going to go back to this album? I guess maybe not daily ro- rotation. Um, I don't know. I've been kind of into it. I've been, I've been listening to it a lot and really enjoying it right now. So I tend to go in phases where I'll kind of listen to something for a couple of weeks and then put it on the shelf for a long time. So nice. I think I'm going to continue probably right That's now great. and we'll see, we'll see about the future. Um, I guess, but yeah, this feels like we, we covered this one well and it was, it's a, it's a great album. People should check it out. Um, and yeah, let's, let's switch gears to my pick, which is a, a new band, a relatively new band, probably about five, six years called big thief. And their most current album is two hands. They actually put out two really good records in one year last year, uh, UFOF, and uh, this in 2019, um, Adrian Lenker is the lead singer um, and, and kind of main songwriter. Um, and they sort of have evolved out of her being sort of a more, you know, kind of folk singer songwriter thing into a, a pretty full band and kind of pretty hard rocking it at times. Um, so anyway, I don't know if you were familiar with this band at all and, and just give, give me your thoughts on uh, Big Thief. Man, I, so I wasn't familiar with them. Um, I had heard the name, I guess. Like, I knew they were kind of a current band, but I'm so, like, I'm not all up on the cool bands that, like, Pitchfork likes and stuff. This are definitely, this is, this is a great band that Pitchfork likes. Um, so I had not listened to them and I really liked this album a lot and felt a little like I had jumped into the deep end. I feel this way a lot, I guess, with some, um, modern groups where especially the way that this album is recorded, which is this very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like they're all in the same space at the same time. This is a group of people in a room playing mm-hmm. music together and it's mixed that way. It sounds that way. You can hear the microphone bleed. You hear them talking to one another sometimes like off mic, yeah. um, as they're working through the songs. So it has this kind of very casual vibe to it that is really um, spontaneous. It feels very spontaneous to me. And jumping in on a band that I wasn't familiar with and listening to them make an album like that um, was wild. Like, it's a wild experience because you just feel like you've walked in 
to a room with a bunch of people having a conversation and they've been talking for years and I just now showed up. So I found the experience really wonderful, like listening to it the first time through, but also disorienting just because I was kind of finding my bearings the whole time. Okay, where are we going? What's going to happen next? I think um, Adrienne Linker is a, has an awesome voice. She's a great songwriter. And so I was, that gave me a kind of focal point to hold on to was just her voice. Every time she started singing, I'm like, okay, this I get, like, I get what she's doing. I really like it. And then I could kind of just let the band evolve around, around her. So listening, I've been listening to this for the past, what, three, four days, maybe just sort of on walks and stuff, going through it, getting more and more familiar with it. I feel like I still need to listen to it a bunch more times before I can speak super authoritatively on it. But I also went and listened to UFOF because looking it up, I, it turns out, yeah, this was almost like recorded at the same time or it came out only a few months after it. Yeah. And it's pretty different. Um, UFOF is great too, but it's a much more produced album and it, it's almost like they were going for two, it's almost feels like a double album or something. And yeah, so I've only, they, well, go ahead. I, I want to know more about that. Cause I'm guessing, you know, more since, since at least how band. they described it was that sort of, um, UFOF and this will kind of get into one of the things I like about this record, but, um, was kind of like their, southern like very humid record they hmm. described it as and then this one is sort of a desert record like it, it's just recorded very dry yeah recorded in texas like, at the freaking sonic ranch at like the coolest recording yeah. studio in the world yeah so like there's no <laughs> the, you know, it's really weird to hear a record that in the 70s you just hear it, but like, there's hardly any like reverb on the drums at all yeah it's like, super it's dry a really like flat record and ufof is very there's just a lot more kind of going on in a mm -hmm. sense of space so i think they're they're kind of i think you're right they're almost like a yin and yang kind of thing yeah so that i think well with bands like this at least that's where i always start is just sort of trying to chart the the narrative of the music because it's so about the band like it's her voice really centers things but it's so different from the buckley thing right where buckley it's so about him and his vision and all of the arrangements kind of spring from his guitar playing so this is such a cool contrast to that because it feels much more like you know what four people who just have spent years in conversation with one another with her as the kind of mc or whatever like overseeing the conversation but you can just hear their parts you know um what's his name buck meek the guitar player that guy's like really cool guitar player yeah um comes up with some really cool parts and just the way that they're fitting everything together is so um organic and so feels like part of a story that I want to go back to the beginning and like listen to each album, you know, to to catch up to here. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, there it's definitely gotten to be more and more of a, a band feel as things have gone on. That makes sense. Um and, you know, originally it was definitely more of a kind of singer-songwriter thing, but mm -hmm. um I guess I mean, I have my personal favorites. I I think it's a really strong album from front to back, but um what were some of the tracks that kind of stuck out to you? I really like Forgotten Eyes. I think that's a beautiful song. Um, I like the uh, like acoustic guitar riff. That was another thing that I found kind of centering. I was like, okay, I understand this groove. This is good. And like that, that guitar riff that pops out is really cool. Yeah, there it is. That's like a, a three to a one, right? Like a, like a me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a three to one, but... Yeah, it's three to one on the five chord. Yeah, 
the way her voice cuts us out of that yeah. uh, chorus after that like chromatic drop mm-hmm. is just like so I don't know it's reassuring her voice could not be described I think as like super strong or super full bodied like it's intentionally sort of like a broken sound to her voice like intentionally sort of softer uh, but the way that it's used in that chorus in particular is just really really strong and effective to me along with again those uh, like that three to one like you said on the five chord uh, like it, it I think you use the word centering and it kind of is it's like uh, like it's outlining the the one right right uh, with a need to know yeah exactly I, I don't know I, I guess this is just more amusing on how that chorus plays out to me but I really really loved like that's one that Spotify served me for like months and months before I actually started oh, listening really? to this album. Funny. Yeah, uh, it, it like it kept putting it into my Discover Weekly, um, and I just like I enjoyed it whenever it was on, but I, for some reason never made it back to the album until very recently, actually just before we started uh, uh, putting this episode together. Um, but that has always stuck with me because it's a very like the way that they use that chromatic drop in that uh, chord that the chorus starts on is like sort of a sappy nostalgic feeling almost and mm-hmm. then she brings it up with that like upper register high cracked voice i don't know it's just not the tools you'd expect to make something that sounds like that but then it sounds like that yeah she has a kind of a there's a style of singing like i, I like the way that she sings a lot where she's speaking of the break like she is really stretching herself up to her break and then letting it crack or it wavers at times and so it's kind of like yeah. if you're like ah, ah, like you're kind of up there and you're going between your chest mm-hmm. and your head and you know for women it's in a different place but she really leans into it in this um very disarming way because she's she could probably power through it and put more behind it and you know just sing the note um but she's not and it kind of causes her to sound a little bit broken but then the lyrics, she tends, she's kind of a like a very fragile anger to the way that she sings, or at least that I hear in yeah. what in what she does. And like you hear it, it's just this kind of like frustrated, um, crackling thing where she just kind of pushes herself again and again and again up to that break and over it. And it's really, yeah, I, I find it very. It really brings me in. I guess it's a kind of a vulnerability, even though. It doesn't. It doesn't feel soft at all or vulnerable. It's just like because I can hear that in her voice. I guess it. It really brings me in. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it's easy to just hear that and say, "Oh, you know, she just can't really hit that or something." But no, the yeah, way that no. she, the way she deploys it at like certain times that are kind of getting like a little more dramatic. Um, I think she has really good timing on mm-hmm. her phrasing. Yeah, yeah. For for not having maybe like the most expansive range, let's say. I think mm-hmm. she's a very canny singer in, in some ways that, you know, maybe um like I think Dylan's a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he's not a technically great singer, but Dylan, I think his phrasing and the way he kind of breaks up words and lines is really good. And I think she has some of that to me. Her like her kind of rhythmic sense of how yeah. she's kind of riding on the chords. Is, yeah, and she's that- very canny about it. And it seems very like sort of instinctive, but she you can tell she puts thought into how her vocals are kind of laying out on the on the measures. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm thinking about that chorus in particular of Forgotten Eyes we were just listening to where she's like, everybody needs, and she like pops up into uh, mm-hmm. her falsetto. Like it, it again is reaching that. It's like she's pushing herself to that point. <laughs> Can and you then, do that again, Jason? Uh, we'll just roll the tape <laughs> that's, back. I, I, that's a once in a lifetime uh, experience. It's live music, it. baby. <laughs> uh, but no, it's like she's pushing. She Again, like you said, it, it could be the first time listening to it, or maybe somebody who's not really listening for um, 
for the kind of things that that I guess we were listening for, it sort of does appear as though like she doesn't have the quote unquote skill or the talent to to hit that. But you like more and more you listen to this album, you're very aware that she is like keenly aware of, of her uh, limit of the limitations of her voice, and she's leveraging them to a yeah. very specific effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know, Matt. Matt, it's interesting to me that you picked this album because I remember long ago uh, you were talking to me about. Some you didn't name any specific artists, but you said that you weren't a huge fan of um like a, a recent wave of just very like sort of uh soapy um I guess like not weaker um, voices, but like less impactful, just like kind of for lack of a better term, whiny. And you probably didn't use yeah, these exact terms, but it's the no, vibe I, I got mean, from the conversation we had. Part of it, man, is just like I've uh, I've played in bands so long. I've been in indie rock so long. I've just heard so many indie rock bands. I've heard so many, and like just my 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 appetite for like you know dude feelings of like twenty seven year olds is just kind of like gets you know what I mean. I've just heard so yeah, much. I do I've heard so mean. much for so long, and it, it, and part of it is his age, you know, kind of and everything like that. But um, so that, that I actually really like indie rock. I just don't find a lot of new bands that really speak to me. So when I do, like in this case, it I, I tend to really like it because it's some something about it. Just the way I think the way that they play together is really good. Mm-hmm. Um I love um oh I'm gonna butcher his name, the drummer, um <laughs> who has a really is Kriv Krivchinia. Uh, Krivchinia. Yeah, James um, James Krivchinia. I think he's a great drummer. I want to call creative. attention. And in a way that I think people when they think of good drumming, they, they a lot of times think of something that's sort of more um, explicitly kind of showy. Sure. I like, think I of thought Neil his drums, <laughs> Yeah, Neil Peart. Or, you know, even even on the Buckley record, there's a lot of very yeah, kind of sure, like sure. expansive like drumming. Studio pros, but, getting it done, yeah. Yeah, but he's almost like, reminds me of like an earlier kind of studio pro, like a mid-60s guy. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That would just kind of come in and like hit a really good groove or like Ringo Starr kind of thing. Sure. Um, so I really like him as well. Yeah. yeah uh, it. I don't mean to cut you off, Kirk. Oh, you go sorry. ahead. Oh, um, I, man, um, I, I think that what you're saying about her singing is very true in relation to bands like this, which I don't listen to a lot of bands like this, but her singing, I think, is so crucial for this. Like, if there were a guy singing in the same, these same songs with these same arrangements, it'd be a way harder. Like, maybe if he's great, like, if it works, it works, and it could yeah. work, and obviously that's like... A different reality so it just isn't what the band is but it feels to me like her voice and her vision is the unifying thing despite the fact that they're definitely an organism on their own and each part is like responsible for its own sound like they're each right. contributing like she is definitely the thing that for me anyways like you know sort of sort of centers the whole album Definitely. It's funny you should say that because uh, I did a little bit of reading on like, some, and I'm sure you did too, of like interviews with with her, with the lead uh, singer songwriter and some of the other band members about how this these two albums came together. A little bit, actually, not like, that much. I'm curious to hear about it. Yeah, I mean, the takeaway is that like they are they want their the intimacy of their group to come through, which is why they like a lot of their uh, song recording is primarily done again not with overdubs there's some cases where you can clearly tell that she's harmonizing with herself so you know they've gone back and recorded but um a lot of their stuff is just people in a room open very like they're looking at each other their stage presence is lined up much the same where the intent is that they're always able to look at each other they're always like within close physical contact of one another um and that really goes a long way toward building what you described as like like you're walking into a room of people who have been having a conversation for a long time and you're like 
at at ground floor. And they're not. It's not like it's not. It's very welcoming music, right? It's not like harsh or dissonant or anything. But it does. It has this feeling of intimacy that, like, the more the longer the album goes on, the more you feel part of it. Uh, and we're not speaking in like theoretical terms or, or like with with with, uh, with respect to music theory here or like the flow of it or structure, but just like the feeling that it evokes is something that I, I guess I didn't really expect from having heard just one song from the album. Uh, but it really is like, it's a big cushion that brings you in um, little bit by little bit. Uh, they're not like super powerful or driving songs. Usually they're a little bit like airier. There are a couple songs with a uh, full drum kit, but a lot of them have much lighter hand at the drums. Um, I don't know. I guess it's more just the feeling that this album evokes to me uh, than the actual, because the song, the chord structures are fairly simple. Like you could probably hear them put together in other, uh, in other songs like this, but it's like the individual voicings that they're given from like the, the relationships that the band members clearly have with one another, the understandings that they have of each other as not just musicians or as bandmates, but as people really somehow comes through. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. It's funny that, you know, it's so about the space. You, you, you feel the space. When I listen to this, I feel the space they're in. You can hear the guitar amp. It doesn't just sound like an isolated guitar track over on the left. You hear the amp, like you hear it in the room. And it's not like room reverb exactly. It's just like it's being picked up by other mics, like the drum mics yeah. or whatever. And so you can hear things in relation to like the space in a way that you can't. And then there's just... Yeah, you're talking about an intangible, right? Like the idea of how you can hear the vibe of a recording session and how that can come across. And I think that's like such a fascinating thing that is very, very hard to talk about. Like it's not a thing like it's, you know, like on strong songs, I can, I can go and break down what they're playing and pick out the guitar parts mm-hmm. and talk about the melody, but it's so much harder to, to get into sort of what were the, what was the headspace they were in? What was the room like? So this was recorded at Sonic Ranch, which is this bananas awesome recording studio in Texas that a ton of people have recorded at, like producers will work out of. And it's this whole huge complex. And I've never cut an album this way. I would love to go record an album. There's plenty of places in Oregon. I live in Portland, like, you know, where people will just have a, a really cool studio. A producer will have a studio in their basement and you go stay with them for a week. And it's just like every day you get up and you go into the room and the room is all set up. You got mics and everything. Everyone's in the same room and you record and you get this sense of like, you build a small little, like, it's not a community exactly because it's your same band, but it's like, you, you just have this home kind like- of. Summer like, camp, kind of. Yeah, it's like summer camp. And you like build a home and you're in this room every day and you're working on the songs and you're recording. And that comes across super strong on this album for me. Yeah. Like by the end, it's like, oh, this is, we're hearing, yeah, kind of their summer camp. We're hearing this little home that they built for a while in this room that they then used to make this music. And it's really special. I mean, it's a, it's an unusual thing and really, really cool. We should, uh, let's listen to another one. What was another track that, uh, you wanted to? Oh, I like not, um, not as a, not as a good one. That's my jam right there. (laughs) Yeah. Not, not, that's where they go off. Love this record. Yeah.
Something I'm realizing as we're listening is like there isn't a whole measure where she's not singing. Yeah, it's probably like, a fairly exhausting song. Well, I mean, of, of course, until they rock out at the end, then yeah. then there's not singing for a while, and the band the band gets to kind of take over. Yeah, this song reminds me of this is kind of random, but there's this Antonio Carlos Jobim bossa nova tune called "The Waters of March." And it's like, it's that like, a stick, a stone, it's the end of the road, it's the rest of a stump, it's a little alone, a sliver of glass, it's the life, it's the sun. Like, it's all these things. Oh, the and it's, it's just listing thing? stuff. And it's like a song where they just list stuff. And I really like songs that just list stuff, which is one reason that I like this song, even yeah. though this is like the opposite. <laughs> it's all things that it's not. But um, as a songwriter, it's fun to take a device like that and then just be like, run with it which she does and it just it gets at this like relentless energy that just goes and goes and goes and goes but it doesn't feel like a song that's super wordy even though there's a ton of lyrics in the song like does it repeat do the choruses repeat it is yeah the choruses the choruses repeat yeah but there's no i think some of the verses repeat too oh okay yeah there's there's a lot there's a lot that does it's i I was just watching along with the lyrics as we were going just on my phone oh okay okay I, i didn't realize how quickly like how immediately it pops out of the chorus because the chorus has largely the same structure as, except it's got right. It just like kind of flows. Couple, yeah, it's got a couple of chords in there that, um, or like in different arrangements. I think if I was hearing correctly, than the uh, verses do, and that's why they they differentiate a little bit. But primarily, like uh, that's what I mean is by like by the end of the chorus, we just like go from those knots of the chorus that are repeated multiple times through the through the song into knots that are of, that are in the verse. So it kind of like meshes together. It puts me in a mind space of like. Somebody who has so many things to say, like so many yeah, yeah, negatives sure. to add that it's like, I don't know, it's almost paradoxical a little bit where it's like, okay, it's not this thing. I don't know if anybody's going to be able to follow what I'm saying, but like, it's not this thing. And you're listing so many specific things that, that it or this person <laughs> or the, or the thing you're talking about is not, it's really weirdly specific of you to get that specific when you're just listing things that it's not to right, you, like right, how yeah. they're not important. I, I don't know. And, and the, the structure of the song reflects that, that it's like this person cannot stop themselves talking about it. They can't like take a breath until like you say, the end of the song, uh, even though they're just listing things that it's, that it's not, so to speak. That's cool. I like that read on it. That's good. I love the guitar solo as well on this, yeah. which comes in. And I, cause I, I really actually like how loud they mix the guitar solo. Like it really kind of mm-hmm. kicks down the door and it's mixed almost kind of weirdly loud. Yep. It's for jarring. How you no, would, yeah, like, I, I really like professionally that mix something. But recently I've been listening to a lot of like, um, like fifties records, like rock and roll records, like little Richard type mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. And those records, it's so funny how they're mixed compared to today. Like they were clearly made meant to like pop on like one, you know, speaker, right. Right. AM in radio. So like when a, a saxophone solo comes in or something, it's so loud. It's the only thing you can hear. And like the <laughs> yeah. vocal is, the vocal is louder than like the kick and snare. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? The vocal is like twice as loud. So I think I kind of like something about that old style of like, Hey, like pay attention to this. Mm-hmm. Here kinda. is the thing. <laughs> this is the most important thing. We're exactly. going to put it right in your face. Yeah, for sure. With a blanket of thirst. 
that's that catch thing in her voice. Yeah, when her voice starts to break like that, that's also very powerful. Like she knows, she knows what she's doing. Like she's definitely in command. makes this guitar solo work is that that thing we were talking about earlier like the fact that you feel like you're there with them and you feel like you're in the room and so much of the album isn't you know super intense guitar solos and sort of jams that then when they finally cut loose at this moment especially at the end of this song that's like a very tense song that it's kind of just building and just going on and on and on and on and then she finally just stops singing and the guitar just erupts like it's a really effective idea um in terms of arrangement it, it really works it sounds like he's trying to like wrestle the guitar into submission mm-hmm. yeah it sounds a little out of control i didn't think that not would become the centerpiece of our discussion around this album but no it's a strong one it's yeah a strong it's, one. it's definitely a strong it's a strong song you could say oh hey this is our <laughs> podcast hey. no 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 that's good that's good <laughs> um, any what uh, any other songs that you kind of grabbed you or thought there was some elements you wanted to talk about? Um, I liked Wolf too, sort of a counterpart to Not. Wolf is very um, minimalist, and I just like the guitar part. It's like a very straightforward guitar part, but again, it's sort of you know, like we've been saying, it's kind of the type of guitar part I've heard before. But what they're doing with it and the way that she sings um, makes it feel a little bit different. And then the way that it's recorded also, and I like that she howls like a wolf. <laughs> in the song too. <laughs> this that sounds a little too low to be standard. It's Is a that drop C, I believe we're in C. Drop C. Yeah. Pillow 
So I like the phrasing on this a lot. I really like establishing this sort of, you know, hello to the morning moon, woke up as you left the room. It has like this very set sort of meter that matches up with the guitar part, but then pillow still warm. And it's just three words and it just kind of carries off. That's really nice, man. Like it's, she's a good songwriter. Like this just has a very cool, um, cool approach to it just to really quickly set you up like that. And then to just give you a shorter line in that third, in that third line. It is weird to think how like fully formed some of these ideas sound because again, like the, all of the band members have said that their recording process is that they don't like to play the songs above a certain number of times before recording, just because like it starts to lose some of that improvisational, like intimate feeling once you do Mm -hmm. that, sort of like that stumbling to find their place in the song. Um, but again, wild to think that this song, like every, every turn of phrase, every like dynamic that occurs throughout these songs feels very intentional. It feels very like plotted out. And that's like, obviously, um, uh, ironically. So, because it, it like by definition wasn't, it's not how they recorded the album. I yeah, just love how, uh, how almost slapdash it feels at times, but like knowing that it is like, everything is, is as it was supposed to be, even though it came from a place of improvisation to an extent. Yeah, it's that kind of relationship you build up with other musicians when you play with them a lot. You get, you know, what we're hearing is kind of, we're hearing trust, right? Like, that's not something you can really hear, but we kind of are. Like, it's people who have learned to trust one another and deliberately make their process about keeping the trust in the finished product as much as possible. Because, you know, eventually you rehearse, you rehearse the need for trust out of it. They, you still trust one another, but it's not that same feeling of like, all right, I don't really know how we're going to do this, but I'm going to try this. And I just trust that this person playing with me is going to, you know, follow me there or support me in that way. And that comes mm-hmm. across, I think, on this album, like that, the feeling that they're all, trusting one another and listening really closely to one another. You can hear that they're listening to one another, I guess. And the listening and the trust, it's all kind of related. But that's a cool yeah. thing to hear. That's an unusual, an unusual, it's not a sound. It's like an unusual yeah. quality, I guess, for an album. And I suppose as, as a jazz musician, I mean, that's kind of for sure how jazz sessions usually go. I mean, unless, I mean, not always, I'm sure, but. I mean, no, but absolutely. I, I mean, it's like a foundational part of the music. And when you, when a band is really cooking and they're playing, you know, the, like all the best jazz albums, they rehearse maybe one time through, maybe run the head or something, but you usually just go in and play it, especially the way those guys were cranking out albums in the fifties and sixties. And yeah, for sure. I mean, the best groups, people who've been playing together for a really long time, it's beyond trust. You know, it's like they're, they're all almost telepathically linked. You know, just like any any great band, but especially, you know, really good jazz groups. And you can hear yeah. when it gets super exciting, especially, you know, more, more modern groups, you'll hear that same feeling done up in a more kind of um, outre way, I guess. Like when Wynton Marsalis's group is playing or something, like they're consciously like going completely outside of the time and stretching and going almost free and then bringing it back in like these really flamboyant ways. There's a subtlety, though, to what Big Thief is doing that's the same kind of you know, feeling. It's the same musical relationship between different players. It's just being expressed in this much more intimate, low-key way. And it's really wonderful. Yeah, I think for me, it, it uh, that's really probably the main thing I probably love about the record. And I think, you know, to me, I'm not anti-digital recording. There's a lot of good things about it. I'm not sure how good digital recording in some ways has been for rock music. Yeah. Because, you know, like, this is why, like, you know, we're, we're, it's kind of interesting that we're talking about this almost as a novelty because, like, this is how people used to make records. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? It's like how the Beatles made records. It's how the Rolling Stones made records. You know what I mean? And so it's funny that now 
you know, I just hear a lot of new rock music and I, I love digital, I think recording it, I think it really suits a lot of pop and like hip hop and stuff like that. But I see a lot of stuff you can tell is very quantized, mm-hmm. like after the fact. And it's very, you know, I know there's stuff like Melodyne and all those kind of softwares. Like it's just kind of nipped and tucked so much where it almost, it's almost like this kind of Botox effect. You know what I mean? Like yeah. If, it's if like I hear like a perfect, a, a Foo Fighters record or something, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, or like a major label record. And where I think that, so I think part of what you respond to this is you don't hear this as much anymore. Like no, for sure. Like- I mean, man, just even getting into, I've been like working on my guitar tone and, you know, getting some new pedals and stuff because I just want some more options. And I stay away from gear too much, like gear stuff online, like gear YouTube, which is like this whole terrifying rabbit hole of like people sitting in front of walls of guitar pedals and stuff. But I was, you know, looking at some reviews of like a reverb pedal and kind of watched a few videos. And it's wild to me how quickly you get drawn in to a world where there is this like objective standard for how everything is supposed to sound. And it's like, everyone just thinks, Oh yeah. Like your drums just need to sound this certain way. Like they need to be this like perfectly compressed, super tight, like isolated thing where you've got like just the right amount of like pop and like spread on the snare drum. And it sounds like this, check it out. And then they play and it sounds great. It always sounds great. And you're like, wow, it's a great player. Really, really well recorded. But this album doesn't sound like that. This sounds totally different. This was recorded in a like multi, multi million dollar recording studio, but they wanted it to sound this way. They wanted to capture the sound of the space. And that I think, and there's a lot of modern groups that do this stuff. I like Wolfpack, every one of their records, right? Like they're always just sitting around in a living room somewhere and they just record stuff and you mm-hmm. get an energy to that that you don't get when even if people record at the same time, if they're all in ISO booths and like everything is totally, you know, separated, you just don't get quite the same sound. Yeah. I think, I mean, uh, that's one of the things I really respond to. And I think, I think it sounds really good. I also think that, you know, to get back to like some recording stuff, I think you hear just like tons of reverb on everything nowadays, because I think there's just plugins. Yeah. It's it's super easy. It's fun to play with. It's fun to play with reverb. And it's also like you put it into the track insert and it's like oh that sounds wild That's right cool. my voice sounds great now <laughs> yeah you know and then it's, it's, it's just really make the track better and then it's mm-hmm. like you start adding more than stuff and it, it's sort of cluttering things so i think i think there's something that just seems like a just sort of like cold water in the face yeah. about this record you know uh for i guess down that rabbit hole it's a minimalist record we've established that like it doesn't need much more but if you could add one thing to this record uh, an instrument or like an overdub would you add anything at all? Do you think? Yeah, any, I would put a giant tenor it? saxophone solo on every single song. Are you kidding? <laughs> that's my that's my answer to that question for every album. There would just be a yeah, ripping yeah. tenor solo, like right there. That's that's <laughs> yeah, like that a real eighties, like eighties rock. Mm-hmm. Tons kind of, of reverb on the sax, yeah. reverb and delay. Yeah, like, Double it up. Just let it rip. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think you know, I wouldn't add a thing. Yeah, I. I my real answer is no. <laughs> That's it's no way. Like trying to add something to an album this carefully balanced would be like, you know, I don't know, trying to add an ingredient to like a master meal. Like this has been created very carefully by people, and adding something to it would 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 mess up the balance. I think that's the right answer. It was just a litmus test. <laughs> no, it's good. That was a good. That was a good test. Um, I don't know if. if before we wrap up, do we want to listen to anything else off this record? Um, I mean, those are my top tracks, but I'm, I, I mean, any of yours, I'm happy to listen to more. Uh, I think shoulder. Oh, that's a great song. 
is I think I think this you know I, I like one thing before we listen to this I think is interesting about her is that she can kind of go from almost sort of like very explicit almost kind of confessional stuff to stuff like not that's almost more abstract kind of wordplay and I, I think that's kind of interesting and this one is definitely one of the more emotional ones. obviously a very powerful song and a kind of a yeah. very grim scene you know sort of unfolding here yeah i think it was like the second time i listened that that lyric the blood of the man who killed my mother with his hands is in me in my veins where i was like oh yeah. okay now i know That's, what this song yeah. is about lyrics kind of always take a minute to get to me like i hear the music first and then on a third or fourth listen i'll like start to really pay attention to all the lyrics and what it's about but yeah that lyric was the one where i was like oh okay i'll know what this song is about then i guess jesus yeah i mean it's you know she definitely goes to some dark places lyrically um but i think at the same time i don't think she ever verges onto being maudlin or no no overwrought i mean i think she she's really it's hard that's a hard balance to strike you know what i mean it's a hard balance to write Mm -hmm. a song about something like this um you know what I mean? And, and, and have it, I don't know. There's enough distance there too, to the subject, I think. Yeah. I think that like, there's a plain spoken nature to the music, like the actual instrumentation and the recording too, that helps. Like it helps it feel like this isn't some, you know, epic, like you said, maudlin, you know, meditation on abuse and trauma. It, it's just there. She's just describing this thing. She's singing beautifully, but it's, you know, because the music is so just right there, it, it kind of helps it not, go too far mm-hmm. yeah you can hear the room in that song probably the For most sure. i think oh yeah at the beginning of that song you really I mean, was there's no bass really right it's like, like a- just that like electric guitar like kind of overdriven and like just the drums which is a kind of a cool a sound that just feels like there's no bottom so it's just it really you can really hear the space because it's just those yeah. two instruments I love that it sort of extends the the ceiling, so to speak, of the song yeah. with like the third song or the third word in the song on on the up of "Please Wake Up." There's a like a, a, a three part harmony, 
right? Like, oh in, yeah, you're right. That's cool. That that doesn't appear in a whole lot of the rest of the album, and it just starts out so strong, and it sort of contrasts with what Matt was saying about the subject matter of the album, where it's obviously very like I don't know the story behind it. I don't know if it's a narrative she's uh, spinning or if you know it's inspired by her real life experiences, but it like definitely feels very very personal, and yet she's building a whole lot of space above her. Um, with with harmony with those uh, you know the upper I guess the less grounded instruments um, the, even the drums are very like jangly there's I believe I think I heard tambourine in the back uh, it's like a weird song to choose to make uh, like an airy sound out of but I think it really really works in this track yeah I agree it's a good song well I mean I guess any final thoughts on the record and just you know any takeaways for you from from listening to this and being exposed to Big Thief? No, my main takeaway is that I want to go back and listen from the beginning and just hear how they've progressed. I really want to listen to UFOF because what I've heard of that song or album, I've listened to four or five songs I've really, really liked. Um, and I think it's a cool counterpart to this album and it makes this album make even more sense. So that's the main thing. I'm going to go listen to that song. But yeah, no, they're just I mean, a cool band. Great. I'm really, I'm glad you hit me to them. Like I'm, I'm totally going to, going to listen to this, listen to them some more. Yeah, UFOF is great. Their other stuff is great. And I think they're kind of in a neat... I feel like they're sort of peaking right now as a band. You know, they, mm. they've been around for a little bit and released two great albums. So hopefully, you know, I don't know what... I don't know how bands are right now. Yeah, I was about to say, it's like they can't... Like, they had to cancel their tour. That must suck to yeah. have just released two big albums and not be able to tour. That's tough. Yeah, it's too bad. But uh, anyway, again, Jeff Buckley, Grace, Big Thief, Two Hands. I think they're both... Um, I don't know, different albums, but maybe there's some commonalities there. And I think yeah, that's really complimentary really in some time. ways too. Yeah. Um, if I can, uh, if we've got a little geez, bit of time we, left, I can, yeah, I can lead us into community questions. Let's do it. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I'll start out by mentioning that you can leave us a review on iTunes. And uh, if you're a Patreon supporter of MinMax at, I believe, any tier, you can leave us um, questions and song suggestions. We we drop suggestions from the community into a Spotify playlist we share every episode. Uh, and we pick one song that uh, our community suggests to play at the end of the episode. We've, we've chosen ours for this one. Uh, and we've picked a few uh, of the questions that were left this week, too. Um, we sometimes go back for a grab bag of questions if there was time or if we didn't get time on our previous episode. Uh, we we might uh, pull back and grab one for a future episode. So uh, don't don't feel that all is lost if we didn't choose your your question once around. It might come back. Uh, and now that my min max uh, Ben Hansen mandate is finished, he's <laughs> lowering the gun from behind me, practicing social distancing. Interestingly, he's six feet away with a Glock pointed at my head. Uh, wow, wow, this is. I gotta dark. say, I gotta thank him. It's he's yeah, it's, it's appropriate. Like responsible uh, threatening is it's good. <laughs> So uh, first question comes from Tamriel Bellerin, who asks, have you ever heard a uh, sample that you instantly recognized? And how did the use of that sample change how you felt about both songs, both the sampling song and the sampled song? Oh, man, I can answer this one. I have one that I've heard and immediately recognized. And I actually recently did a Strong Songs episode about this song. And that is Nina Simone's um, version of Sinner Man which okay. is sampled by Talib Kweli on Get By and also by Timbaland on O Timbaland, both in like the early 2000s. And it's, you know, it's Wolves in a Man, Where Are You Gonna Run To? Do you know that? Have you heard that song? It's like, there's this piano breakdown in the middle oh, of yeah, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. 
um, where they like clap their hands and it's like boom, bam, 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 bam. anyway, I can't I mean, sing I, it. I know Get By really well. I can picture that. Oh, well, Get By is like completely yeah. built out of her piano part. Yep, so it's yep. like boom, bam, 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 bam. and they, it's Get By is nasty. That song is awesome. The Timbaland track, like not as good. I don't think it doesn't really work for me, but both times I heard it and Timbaland actually starts with the hand clapping piano thing of the Nina Simone track. And I just heard it and was like, oh, hell yes, I love that track. This is going to be great. And with the Timberland tune, then I was kind of like, oh, this is like, this is kind of only okay. But with um, the um, Talib Kweli tune, I definitely was like, oh, this is super, super creative. And the way that they used the sample was cool. And it made me definitely made me like the song more. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot. Just I've been, always been a big fan of rap. Um, I'm trying to think of one, like just a sample that really, um, oh, 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 uh, the, the Ghostface Killer song, um, Daytona 500, samples a song uh, by Bob James, um, did the taxi theme song. Um, but he was kind of a light jazz guy, but it's called Nautilus by him. And it's just, I just love that beat. It, it's just such an insistent beat. And it's kind of built, it's kind of funny because it's very like kind of hardcore rap song, but it's built off this totally like, you know, Bob James is one of those like late 70s jazz guys that looks yeah, like yeah. You know, your social studies teacher with like big glasses and like, <laughs> like a sweater. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, but yeah, this is a really, it's just an awesome sample. So that, that, and it exposed me to Bob James too, which who I, I kind of dig now as well. That's kind of nice. a cool way uh, to find music, right? Is like going back through old samples. Did you hear about the Library of Congress? They just like opened this. I don't really know about this, but they like, or I don't know the particulars, but they opened this huge library of samples that like now has a, it's like a, there's a digital tool that lets you use a ton of samples via the library of congress which is super cool wow. i kind of want to go mess around with it they've like built a production tool out of it yeah it's citizen dj i don't really know what it is but i've seen people talking about it and it sounds really really neat like just people who are That's into fun. like samples and, and that kind of you know music like remixing and stuff um uh-huh. is yeah it's like a it's an app i guess that lets you do this thing i don't have to mess around with it but it, it looks pretty neat. that's great yeah hey i'll look forward to hearing it on strong songs <laughs> uh i'm gonna play a little bit of daytona 500 to give listeners an idea of what we're talking about and then we'll jump back to get by as well because you can never fuck with roots and To rock Mac, knowledge, knowledge, street astrologers, light up the mic, guard, knowledge, block joints, the character points, Corolla, Motorola, Hola, play a guard, he pack over the shoulder, chrome tanks, play it like Yanks, check the franchise, front on my guys, my enterprise, blast many That is a really fat beat, that, that twangy guitar and the bass, the bass that follows. Yeah, that's solid. Running this crib, oh, get like a limo, inject to the fly state, relate, take a break, break down the eighth and then wait. Sorry, we're just going to jump over to Get By Next by Talib Kweli. Yeah. <laughs> Starts with Nina. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so that's Nina's piano part. Just get by, just get by, just get by. We come mute to computer spirits, they mute while your ego spread rumors. We survive and let us turn to consumers. Just get by, just get by. Ask why some people gotta live in the trailer, cause like a sailor, I paint a picture with the. 
I've heard Sinner Man like a thousand times, obviously, but like who who listens to that song? Who hears that song and thinks, man, this would sound great with like a boom bap beat underneath Kanye it? Who, West who apparently has that mind. Holy that shit. one's produced by Kanye, and that's it's cool because yeah. it also takes the piano part, which sounds very different in context, and it adds that ascending bass line under it, and it reharmonizes it. Like it becomes this minor ascending thing with, but that piano part still works over it. So it sounds like an almost different song, but that's actually Nina's piano playing. They've like detuned it, I think. They've like lowered it a minor third or something. But yeah, I, that track knocks me out, man. It's so good. Yeah, no, oh, man. See, now I'm just gonna get up. Kanye was so good. When he was just like a rap producer, he was so good yeah. and then he became a genius. Yeah. Then once he became a genius and he just puts out this <laughs> bullshit. But like as when he was just like straight rap producer, God, he was brilliant. Such a good beat. Uh, I actually have an answer to this question too, that uh I, I found it a really interesting question. Um, because well, I guess uh I, I'm not I don't know. I think Matt knows this. I didn't grow up with rap uh or hip hop. I wasn't really like my parents weren't into it, so I wasn't into it kind of mm-hmm. thing. And by the time that I was old enough to, I'd already developed the taste in, you know, other genres of music. I've sort of become a little more literate. I know the big players. I know a lot of the names. Uh, but one of the one of the ways that rap sort of uh, snuck into my musical tastes as a child was because a friend sent me um, Tupac's Runnin', Dying to Live, which yeah, uh, sure. I believe was released posthumously. And it contains a sample of Edgar Winter's Dying to Live, which is a beautiful song wrecks me every time i listen to it uh and i i want i hope other people have the same experience i have hearing this because it's 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 a fun way that they've uh like obviously tuned it up uh and sped it up to make it like fit more of a beat than the original context i've always just loved how this falls into because i i guess the context here is my mom was super into edgar winter and i got really got super into edgar winter as a kid Nice. Uh, so it was it was a fun marriage of like music I wasn't really listening to and music I was listening to way too much. Me and Biggie's situation is smaller than that. Me and Biggie's situation is like Central. I got a black man. Like two bucks. Shots up. So yeah, just like nice, yeah, uh, a really fun recontextualization of of both of that song. I guess I don't know how that song was received uh, contemporaneously. It's from two thousand three, clearly after. Uh, yeah, like, I wasn't really. I mean, I don't think it was. I kind of lost track after there were so many posthumous things that came out. You know what I mean? Of various quality, I kind of just stopped mm-hmm. paying attention at a certain point. But yeah, Edgar Winter, you know, he's definitely a top two albino blues <laughs> guitarist named Winter. He's just, yeah. Uh, that's rough. Did you ever hear about, uh, I think Roadwork is his live album with uh, White Trash, uh, Rick Derringer no. and White Trash. Uh, he and his brother clearly, you know, just stark white. And they, I believe that was recorded at the Apollo. And of course, it's a predominantly African American audience. And like the audience apparently just started laughing when they took the stage. Because <laughs> it's a bunch of like really thin, really pale guys who are going to, you know, get up and, there, yeah. and do whatever they do. But they like, can jam though, right? But then they kill it. Yeah, they start with a like a gospel influenced tune called "Save the Planet" that just knocks everybody's socks off. Like everybody's cheering. Nice, it's, nice it's, love when that it's happens. The it's one of my favorite live albums of all time. All right, uh, friend of the podcast uh, and host of the Gaming Ride Home podcast, Kyle Hilliard asks, and I think I apologize, um, Kirk, that maybe some of these were more 
saxophone influenced questions since people <laughs> knew you were going to be on. So I apologize if it's a little bit of treading uh, old ground. For There's you, but... nothing to apologize for. <laughs> he asks if uh, if Kenny G gets a bad rap. I, you know, I answered this. I had a listener asked this question on Strong Song, so I have given an answer to this before, and I was very ah. diplomatic because. The way I'd put it is like Kenny G's not my thing musically, um, as a saxophone player. I don't, so I don't think that he gets a bad rap, at least as a player. He's not, um, a terrible player by any stretch. You know, he did some cool fusion stuff in the eighties. He just, uh, there, the thing that I find kind of unfortunate about him is how ubiquitous he is and how people think of him as both the sort of standard bearer for smooth jazz and also for the soprano saxophone. So, Smooth jazz, I mean, that, that like description is almost a, a pejorative at this point. Like you can't use it, but like a style of fusion jazz that is sort of more chill and tighter, you know, like, kind of like Steely, you guys did an album, a Steely Dan album, right? Like stuff that is in that yeah. mode or like the stuff that Brecker brothers were doing and then mm-hmm. into Dave Cause and whoever, like there's great players making that stuff. Um, like earlier weather report is for sure. Good. Um, and so like, there's a lot of really good stuff there. Kenny G's music isn't that like it's, it's much more just sort of broad gauzy chords with like a lot of reverb on the sax and he's playing some licks over it, but it's not like the band stuff, the tight kind of stuff that has come from the world of fusion and funk jazz so to me that is kind of a bummer that people will think oh like yeah smooth jazz it's just like a guy kind of noodling on pentatonic scales over like kind of big open chords which like that's not what it is most of the time that being said i think he's a really funny guy and he seems like a really good guy i think he has a really great sense of humor about himself he i have a i have his board game someone gave it to us as a gift like as for christmas and it's like the kenny g board game and it's really pretty funny like it's all just very making fun of like he needs his hair product you're like his assistant in the board game (laughs) he made this college humor video once where he was like this is forever ago when college humor was still a thing and he was like teaching a guy how to play saxophone and it was super funny like it was just very much winking kind of making fun of himself he just seems cool he seems funny he's super successful and like for any saxophone player to be super successful is also something that I think is great. Like more power to you, man. Like if you can make millions of dollars selling saxophone records, like that's great. Even if it's kind of not music that I love. Uh, But the other thing I'll say is that the soprano saxophone is like a beautiful instrument that a lot of people play super, super well. And Steve Lacey. Oh, sure, man. Yeah, for sure. And like, I mean, Dave Liebman, like one of my heroes, a guy who like set me on my musical course back in the day. Cause I like, I mean, there's soprano sax players, Coltrane, of course. Um, and then the, the modern sound, like Tim Rees, there's these guys in New York. It doesn't sound like the way Kenny G plays the soprano saxophone. It just is a different sounding instrument than that really broad, wide vibrato open sound. It can be this very, uh, more on the clarinetti sound. It can just be a, killer killer instrument if you're really really good at it and you're really like taking it seriously for straight ahead jazz like on you know r&b stuff wherever like it can sound so good and it bums me out that people see me like when i'll be on a gig with a soprano sax and they're like oh man play some kenny g and i'm like yeah go fuck yourself (laughs) like no (laughs) how about i play something cool instead yeah so anyways cool guy like not my favorite musician i mean if people want him as like a human meme which i think is what he is kind of now that's fine but like Musically, it's garbage. I mean, and and there's probably literally five thousand jazz people you should listen to before Kenny G. Yeah, I, you know, I I'll never call anything garbage. Like, there's something to like and everything, and like, you know, whatever. More power to him, but definitely not my thing. No, right. I think, of course, Pat Metheny had that like 
famously (laughs) yeah i've read that pretty merciless it's very funny to listen to or to read but like even he ended up saying like these are not the same audiences like it's inoffensive at best that he just sticks to pentatonics that he like sticks with popular tunes that he's not trying anything out of his zone like he knows what he is he's not trying to be the next coltrane right he's trying to be kenny g a popular musician musician not like a virtuos virtuosic like groundbreaking saxophonist uh and that's kind of where i fall in it i i have bad associations with kenny g personally because well just because like in in a daycare at kindergarten the teacher who was just kind of <laughs> always lazy would always put it on for nap time and the nap time would last like two and a half hours oh. <laughs> so i'm slightly traumatized by kenny g call, music. i'm calling child protective services right now <laughs> that's funny <laughs> Uh, the, yeah, it's, it's just like, I have bad associations with Kenny G personally. So I, he's like a joke to me too, but like inoffensively. So, right. Like he's not doing anybody any harm. Yeah, man, just- you know, speaking of Pat Metheny, you want to hear some good kind of stuff that's on the smoother side, go listen to Pat Metheny group, any of that stuff, man, like there's some burning, oh, yeah. burning players doing, doing what might be called smooth jazz. Uh, another friend of the podcast, Kelsey Spaulding asks uh what's your favorite one hit wonder band or artist that actually has a ton of great songs oh man i have an easy one um it's the cardigans which who i actually also just did a strong songs episode on. i picked all my answers to be strong songs episodes that i can continually <laughs> promote my podcast but i just did an episode on love fool um, by the cardigans which people know because it was on the soundtrack for the Boz Lerman romeo and juliet back in the 90s and is a really great song but is one of a ton of great songs on a great album, First Band um, on the Moon, which is a killer album and doesn't actually sound much like that song. It's all over the place, but really consistent. It's it's an amazing album. Like I cannot recommend it more highly. It's so good. And when you hear that song drop, which everybody probably has heard, when it drops in the context of the album, it's such a different experience because you're kind of have become familiar with the musicians and the sounds they're getting. And then suddenly this like dance beat drops and that song comes on and it works really well, which I guess is true probably of a lot of one hit wonders who their one hit was on a really great album. But that one sticks out to me is Cardigan's First Man on the Moon and uh, and Love Fool being the single. I have one that, that came to mind very quickly. Uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot. I think people just think of him as Baby Got Back. Yeah, yeah, that's um, a good one. But actually, his first album, Swass, is, I think, a hip-hop classic. He had a platinum album and a gold album before he even released Mac Daddy, which is the one with um, Baby Got Back on it. He had classics like Posse on Broadway, I think, is one of the classic rap songs of the 80s. Um, you know, My Hoopty, Beepers, just a ton of stuff. Um, and kind of an influential guy in the West Coast, too, because really nobody – from the Pacific Northwest was really mm-hmm. in the rap scene. And he was from Seattle, which was sort of, you know, a little pre Nirvana and also just, it wasn't associated with hip hop at all. So I think he's actually more uh, a better artist and, and more influential than people give him credit to just because of that one song obviously was such a huge and almost like kind of, it felt like a classic one hit wonder kind of song, but he'd actually been around for a while. Yeah. That's that a great pick. Shout out to Sir Mix Latin. I'm sure he needs it in these trials. Yeah, try. I'm he's, he's fine. Don't worry about him. <laughs> uh, my pick, just because I have one, I thought this was a really good question too, um, is Billy Paul, the soul artist of the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, best known for Me and Mrs. Jones, his number oh, one hit. Oh, sure. Uh, okay. That's, that's a crazy good song. And then right after that, actually, he released a song called Am I Black Enough for You? He was very like much into um, promoting civil rights causes and the black power movement. Uh, vocal, quite vocally, and some consider that like that 
releasing that as a follow-up to me and mrs jones it's from on the same album but releasing that as a single immediately following it was sort of seen as one of the big missteps of his career and that it was just very polarizing and it didn't get the same kind of radio play mm-hmm. uh, so while it was a modest hit it never really like a lot of people saw that that put a ceiling above him in terms of how popular he could be. He was still very popular with the black community. He still had like a great Philly sound. But honestly, if you go back and listen to almost any of his records, it's just he's got one of the more distinctive voices. Interesting. In, nice. That's a good tip. Albums. I'll totally go listen to him. Both y'all should check him out. Um, Maxi Flores asks, have you ever been introduced to music through YouTube recommendations and found something that you ended up loving? I feel like maybe. I can't remember now. That whole world of like Lewis Cole and Wolfpack and the like, you know, turbo funk kids. I feel like maybe someone, someone in that world I've sort of like found through YouTube recommendations. But a lot of times, no, it's, it's much more often that someone will, you know, send it to me or write in. But I guess I'm also like a weird person to answer that question. Or I'm sure, I don't know, you guys get this because you're making, well, you'll get this more and more because this is a pretty new show, but you make a music <laughs> podcast for long enough and pretty much all the music you listen to is just people send you cool stuff. Like people will write in and send recommendations. So uh-huh. I'm rarely even looking, I guess, over on the YouTube sidebar for recommendations. So maybe that's a terrible answer, but... <laughs> No, I I don't listen to a ton of music on YouTube. That too. Probably the only time I do is maybe if it's like some really weird, like out of print record and people do like needle drops and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I found you know, like, like Ethiopian some... artists I've been listening to on YouTube because that's the yeah. only place I can find their music. But that said, Spotify, you know, Spotify kind of freaks me out sometimes, their recommendation algorithm, because, you know, I like to fancy myself a very special snowflake with diverse <laughs> taste in musics that... But like, man, the way that they nail my taste sometimes almost kind of freaks me out. And with stuff that's not at all obvious, it's just, yeah, Spotify, they do a really good job of like paying attention to everything you listen to and kind of drawing these weird, I don't know how they draw these connections with AI or whatever. You know, so when I lived, I lived in San Francisco for a while. That was back when I was um, playing music a whole bunch. And a lot of my friends were also musicians and they worked at what would become Pandora, or I guess it was called Pandora, but Pandora hadn't launched or was in beta or something. Um, Pandora Radio, this is. And they were doing something called the Music Genome Project. Have you guys heard about this? No. I don't think so. So it was, that was the name they gave it anyways. And I, I'm kind of just talking off the top of my head here, so I'm not totally positive. I could get some details wrong. But the way that it worked was musicians would come in and you would just go through albums and you listen to the album and you would just build a DNA like print for that album and it would be like all the different things about the album that they would then use to build a recommendation algorithm to like tell you oh if you like this well then here's another album that like features like middle register female vocals low in the mix with like hard fuzz guitar and so the crazy thing was my first album which i released in 2009 i knew people there so i was like hey you guys should put this into the thing and so they did and i looked at the like printout of the sort of profile of my album and it was crazy like i don't have it still but it was totally crazy like it had it was so detailed it had like all these little things about the album and like i made the album so i knew it super well and looking at it, i was like holy crap like somebody went through this and really like made this thing and the fact that any of these are even categories is insane so it makes That's me think wild. that i'm assuming they kept that going and i don't i mean there's too much music on spotify to do it by hand but at the time it was just this like you know big room full of musicians just kind of churning through albums making a sort of genome of all music and i wow. i feel like they probably still use that and that's how you get those scary like 
accurate things to your taste because they really can nail your taste because it's so granular. That's that. Wow, that's interesting. I'll have to look that if up. If I can, if I can digress a little bit, how detailed does that thing get? Is it like songs with key changes from minor to major? Or, yeah, you know, it was that kind it of that? thing. It would be like tempo shifts, like male female vocals, like vocals in unison, vocals in harmony, like electric and acoustic guitars combined, horn sections playing with strings. Like it was like it was pretty. I don't know if it got into like in the predominantly in the key of D or anything like that. Like I'm not sure if they were sitting at pianos. I think they were just using their ears, but it was, it was pretty granular. That is wild. Uh, and it's, it's fun. It's well, not fun. It's kind of creepy actually to imagine like you don't see any of the workings underneath that. So you're just like, Hey, this is also music that I like. Yeah. Like I don't have to question why I like it. Right. I'm not saying that like it's mindless or anything. It's clearly like a, a human driven machine. It's just weird to think that there's so much going on underneath there. Um, uh, I I also don't listen to a whole lot of music on YouTube specifically, um, but I did as of like a few years back. Uh, and one of the albums that it recommended me, I, I'm sure that both of you are familiar at least somewhat with like the rise of Japanese pop and jazz, like 70s and 80s Japanese pop oh, yeah. and jazz over the last few years, primarily because of city were, pop stuff or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like seen a whole resurgence over the last few years, um, specifically because I think it can be largely attributed to anyway, like renewed interest. Um, that generates from people having like dug these records out of old, uh, you know, out of the closet or whatever from years and years ago, their parents or grandparents closet, throwing them on YouTube and finding out that, man, this music actually really slaps. Like it's Mm -hmm. actually really good. Uh, and one of those that, uh, that appeared for me in like 2015, 2016, it's not a city pop album. It's more of like a jazz bebop album, but it's called scenery by Rio Fukui. It's from 1976. Uh, and that song, like, that turned me on to uh, a lot, uh, a lot of that genre, just as it was like cresting in popularity. It's now sort of reached a fever pitch between like the um, chill anime beats to mm-hmm. listen, read, study to like that whole vibe yeah, sort yeah. of generated from, from YouTube's suggestion algorithms. Uh, so that that's one that like is abiding in my mind as scenery. Um, I'd, I'd recommend it if you're a fan of jazz or like it's not the most complex album in the world, but it's very like fun, very densely. Uh, produced very very it's piano led jazz it's really good highly nice. recommend scenery by rio fukui uh and one of our final questions is going to be uh what are your desert island albums um uh flaming queso <laughs> i'm sorry asks this question uh for him and the reason that he suggested this question is because for him it's actually his choice is uh is jeff buckley's grace that's one of mine probably i don't know how many am i limited to i just made a list I think it's, it's only like, supposed to be one. Isn't it supposed to be one, though? Well, oh, really? the, way that, the way that Flaming Queso uh, words it leaves it open. It says, what are your Desert Island albums? Other people have asked this question in the past, uh, and I decided to pull it out now because we have, I think, a wealth of music knowledge on this one, on mm. this episode. So I really want to like – I'll say three just for levity or brevity's sake. Uh, okay. But yeah, okay. I've got a list. Roll with it. I'm looking at the list. Three is – this is impossible, man. This is an impossible question. <laughs> but – um, if I, I'm just looking at my list and I'm going to pick three of like different genres. Stan gets with the Oscar Peterson trio would be one of them. That's one of my favorite jazz albums of all time. Super swinging album. No drummer. It's just bass drums or sorry, bass guitar, piano and tenor saxophone. Such a good album. Um, so that would be one. I guess that's the only jazz one. So I have to like leave saxophone classes and kind of blue on shore. <laughs> Can't take them with. Um, then maybe something harder. Queens of the Stone Age songs for the deaf, uh, is one of my favorite hard rock albums ever. 
And so one. I guess that's the, the second one. And then I'll just say Grace because I already said that that would be one of them. I love that album. So let's see. Oh boy, I hate the. I'm so bad at these questions. It's very. I'm just gonna start listening off a few. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'd say Russ Never Sleeps by Neil Young. Oh, nice. And Crazy Horse. Um, a Love Supreme. Yeah. By John Coltrane. <laughs> um, a, the album Verses by a band called Mission of Burma, um, which is one of the first kind of punk bands. And uh, what else? Um, I need something rap though, don't I? Hey, Takes that was three. Million. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Public Enemy. Never mind. Yeah, nope. You're not good enough. You didn't make the cut, Public Enemy. Got spaced out, Public Enemy. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, sorry, Miles Davis and Maria Schneider and Sufjan <laughs> Stevens and <laughs> Janelle Monet and Frank Zappa. Sorry, Zappa. You're not, you didn't make the cut, man. <laughs> not good enough. Yeah. Should have tried harder. <laughs> it would be really unpleasant to be stuck on an album with, or an uh, island with Frank Zappa. Just no, you probably. and him. <laughs> the, it wouldn't be boring. human alive. <laughs> no, it would be like getting harangued constantly by him. Yeah. That would be a man. That would be like a good, that's like an indie movie. It would be like me and Frank. And like, that would be the yeah, premise of the oh movie. My God. Oh my <laughs> the plot God. is literally Swiss army man, except yeah. it's, except it's Frank Zappa. Yeah. He just uh, like chain smokes and like uh, makes you rehearse something in like 13, eight time signature right, for like right. two hours. Monologues straight. to you about how like messed up the music industry is. You don't even have hard drugs to take the pain away. It's all just nope. straight edge. Just cigarettes and like chords. And one of the final section, or one of the final things we'll pull out from the community is a um, a song that the community suggests. We uh, we ask for song suggestions. If they don't make it onto the show, they make it into uh, a playlist on Spotify. We have the link in the episode description. Uh, today's is a song called "A Grave in Verse" by an artist name, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Isan, a Swedish producer and uh, black metal uh, pioneer from, I believe, in the '90s. They had a band called Emperor. Um, oh, this was suggested. Okay. Okay, Matt. Matt might be familiar with this sound. The, it was suggested by uh, user Swanky Orc. Thank you so much. Um, you'll know exactly why I picked it. Uh, uh, about a minute in, maybe you'll you'll start to hear why I picked it for this. Episode. I think I have a I have a theory that I'm excited you, to listen. You know, Kirk, don't jump the shark on this one. <laughs> I won't jump the gun. I'm pretty yeah see, there's something with emperor i feel like somebody in emperor killed somebody but i don't think it's this guy <laughs> oh like those well. norwegian black metal bands were wild no what's the they band yeah where the guy ate the other guy's heart to get that yeah, wasn't no that was what? mayhem that was mayhem yeah. yeah that was mayhem yeah oh there's a whole thing jason there's a whole thing did he get his powers yeah no, or like that no just... that's like the rumor right that didn't actually happen <laughs> or he ate his brain or that's the rumor is that he ate his brain Rules. I, wow. I feel like Zencaster might be stealing a little bit of our thunder, but if you, if you can hear that, that's the uh, sweet dulcet tones. Yes, there it is. <laughs> so I'm saying every song needs a tenor saxophone solo. That's exactly what, like this song is what I thought of. I was like, he's not going to be ready for when this song comes around. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I get a surprising number of emails from people because a lot of listeners want me to talk about metal more on strong songs. They'll be like, talk about this band. They got a saxophone player. And I don't know if someone sent me this track, but I've, there's a few of them out there, like kind of black metal bands like where that. then out of nowhere, here comes the saxophone and it works. It really works. It works on this track too. It's a, it's a cool it sound. It sounds so frenetic, so mm-hmm. crazy with that, with that really milky tone in the background. It's mm-hmm. nuts. Yeah, yeah no, he's like letting it. it rip. Have you heard that band Too Many Zoos? 
Have you seen these guys? With Leo, I what's his name, the Barry Sax player? Yeah, I think I have. They're like a busking band. Uh, You'll see videos of them online. Like they'll be on the New York subway and he's playing uh-huh. and it's always just like, <laughs> like he does these and he'll be like, <laughs> like he can do these multiphonic high things. I don't know how he does it. But then there's the guy has played with like a bunch of larger groups too. And he kills, man. Check out too many zoos. It's like Z-O-O-S, I think. Speaking mm-hmm. of like super hard hitting saxophone, that guy plays Barry Sax like nobody else. Oh, if I can just drop one more band. Do you know Moon Hooch? Mm, that might be one that I don't know them now. Um, two, two Barry and bass. I think they play Barry and bass. Uh, saxophonists who like, they're very like street band sound. Yeah, I think they deal. started as like, as, like a bass sax on the street. That can't be fun to schlep that thing around. Well, well, that's the thing. Like they gained a name doing that and just sure. making really like, they call it cave music. It's basically okay. like, like club dance music played almost exclusively on these and drums. They have a tiny desk. Oh, uh, nice. NPR. Oh, okay. Really that good. sounds kind of like too many zoos. Oh, that's cool. I'll check them out. Yeah. It, it, it's reminding me very much. Like they do things like, um, they stuck a traffic cone in one of their, uh, mm. in one of their very, in one of their saxophones just to get like a bigger, louder, harsher sound. Yeah, like yeah. they're really pushing instruments to the like craziest extremes huh. just to get the, the right sound they like. I, I don't know if you'd actually like the music, but it's at least interesting to listen I, to. And watch. I probably would if it's good. I'd like it. I like most music. <laughs> Uh, and that's going to finish yeah. up our community section uh, for this episode. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. This was a, it was a super fun conversation. Man, it was my pleasure. Yeah, this was a great time. I'm really happy to have come on. Um, and just as a reminder, uh, KirkHamilton.com, StrongSongsPodcast.com, Patreon.com slash StrongSongs. Also, MinMax on Patreon. Please uh, hit like and subscribe, even though this is a podcast and you can't do that. <laughs> um but uh, Kirk, it was really fun, and, and we appreciated your your yeah. perspective, and it was fun to kind of hear you know your uh, your take on everything. So thanks again, thanks uh, thanks a lot, and good good luck with the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. Good luck to you guys too. This is my pleasure. I hope to come on again sometime. That would, we'd love to have you back. <laughs>